new series during the evening service that I entitled Beginning with Moses, Finding Christ in the Old Testament. And I began that message by taking us to three different passages. The first being this, Luke 24, 13 through 32. The second, Acts chapter 8, verses 27 through 35. And the third, Galatians 3, 18 through 15. And I'd like to ask you one more time by looking at this chapter, Luke 24. Um, uh, or I'm asking you to look at this chapter one more time because it's important that we have one thing down pat. I want to work from a, a, a platform, a foundation that we all agree on. Look at Luke 24, starting at verse 13. The author writes and says, And behold, two of them went that same day to the village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. And as they talked together of all these things which had happened, and it came to pass that while they were commanded, uh, while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus with Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were, were holden that they should not know him. Drop down to verse 25. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, expounded unto the unto them, that's the disciples, and all the scriptures, and that's the Old Testament scriptures, the things concerning himself. Drop down to verse 30. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said unto one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? made the point last week in this passage and each of those others that Jesus himself pointed to the Old Testament and said, the Old Testament taught about me. Now, you don't find the name Jesus in the Old Testament um, in, in specific context to the, the same Jesus that we have here in the New Testament. But last week, we looked at how the Bible teaches about the Messiah, and we looked at the characteristics of the Messiah, and we saw how, um, really, uh, the Old Testament is pointing, yes, to the Christ, the Messiah, which are using that same word. We looked in those three places, one being a gospel account, because it comes from the mouth of Jesus, the second being from the book of Acts, which is uh, uh, coming from the, the pen of, of Luke, but, but it's a record from the New Testament church. And then finally from Galatians, we saw from Paul. So all the writers that representing the, the writers in the um, New Testament all ascribed the fact that Christ was in the Old Testament. The question for us, and the question that I really want to have us be uh, assured of, is that we can agree that yes, Christ the, Christ, the same Christ that we see in the New Testament, we see revealed or uh, uh, in the Old Testament. I, I didn't just choose these three because these were the only passages. There are other passages, as we'll see even tonight, that teach and assure us that we're not on a vain search when we go looking in the Old Testament for Jesus Christ. The question is, where is he to be found? It isn't, is he to be found? The author of one book that I read put it this way. Too many people go into the Old Testament as if they were fishing in a bathtub, 
How many times are you going to catch a fish if you're fishing in a bathtub? Not very often. That is, they expect to go fishing, but they don't expect to catch anything. With the passages that we considered last week, I want us to be able to go fishing with the assurance that we can catch something. We're going into a well-stocked pond. We're not fishing in a bathtub, if it will. If, and so tonight, I'd like to continue our study. And we're going to begin by looking into the Old Testament, and specifically into the covenants that we see in the Old Testament. And tonight I'm going to preach the second message in this series that I've titled, Beginning at Moses, Finding Christ in the Covenants. But before I do, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word, that it is not two stories. Lord, that you didn't have a false start in, in, in the Old Testament. But Lord, before the foundation of the world, you had a perfect plan of redemption. It was to send your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. Lord, that all the prophets of old foretold of those things, and the covenants that you established with uh, various parties in in the Old Testament and in the New, each affirmed that same truth. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of grace that chose and has ordained before the foundation of this world to save us from our sins. We thank you, Lord, that your word is that revelation of your plan, of that truth to us. I pray, Lord, that we'll not dismiss half of our scriptures, thinking that, Lord, that is something that no longer applies to us. But, Lord, we will look into the Old Testament, that we will see the revelation of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we'll understand the context appropriately. Lord, that we'll be able to mind and glean the, the truths that are there and apply them to our lives. We thank you for the grace that you've extended to Israel, the sons and children of Abraham. We pray, Lord, even today for the state of Israel. And though, Lord, so many of your children, your seed in, uh, has, has turned from you, Lord, they have spurned you, and many even today claim to be atheists, believing that there is no God. Lord, we pray for redemption and for revival in that state. We pray for their protection, and we pray for their peace. Lord, we thank you that we are an olive branch grafted in. Lord, that we can um, draw deeply from the, from the stock that is uh, from the vine, and Lord, that we too can benefit from the salvation that comes through Christ. Lord, I pray your blessing on this time. Help us to understand your word and to cut it straight. We, play, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. I'd like to start tonight with uh, justification. Just as I began last week, a study looking in the New Testament to justify my search for Christ in the Old Testament. Tonight, I'd like to begin looking at a couple passages very quickly to justify looking for Christ and the covenants. And I'd ask you to turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. I'd like to begin there in Luke chapter 1 and verse 30. Is Christ to be found in the Old Testament covenants? Look at verse, Luke chapter 1, verse 30. Um, I hope you understand this is, this is the angels appearing to Mary 
um, prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. Verse 30 says, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God and the Lord God shall give him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now, looking at those couple passages, let me read to you Second Samuel chapter seven, verse sixteen and seventeen. It says, "In thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee; thy throne shall be established forever." According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. In 2 Samuel 7, you have the Davidic covenant expressed. And there in Luke chapter 1, at the very birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord declares to Mary and says, the baby that you're about to have is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He goes on, and not only the Davidic covenant, but he also says... He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now you remember the the lineage of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And Jacob uh, then having children. And here the angel of the Lord is not only saying that Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, but also of the Abrahamic covenant. Each one of those... The language is quite definite and gives us, uh, though it's a, the language is a little different from the Old Testament, definitely that would be the understanding that we would have um, as we read, as Mary heard this and as we read it tonight. So let me remind you, the Messiah, the anointed one, is the, pro, is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And here the angel of the Lord is using messianic language in terms of the covenant and in terms of Jesus Christ. So here, one justification for looking at Christ and the covenants. Let's look at another. Look down just a few verses to Luke chapter 1, verse 66. Here, the angel is speaking, uh, or this is um, Zechariah, and it's his song, if you will. Luke chapter 1, verse 60, uh, 68, I'm sorry, and 69. Scriptures say, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Again, here, Zechariah is prophesying, Zechariah being the father of John the Baptist, here he's prophesying, and this term, the horn of salvation, again, is one that's taken from a messianic language found in the Old Testament. And referring to Christ, and again, is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. One more. Hebrews chapter 8. And again, I'm not exhaustively looking at all these. I'm taking a few, sharing them with you, to give you the fact that I'm not uh, hunting, I'm not fishing in a bathtub. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. We're going to jump around here just a little bit. But Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Hebrews, yeah, that's right, thank you. I'm tired tonight. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the things which uh, we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, and the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man, 
Drop down, look at verse 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Turn all the way to the back. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. There in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 6, you see that there is the mediator, Jesus Christ, and he is the mediator of a better covenant. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Here, three times, in, or, or as you work your way down through Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews 13, you see Christ's name mentioned as a mediator of a better covenant. And you hear, see in chapter 13, verse 20, that his blood is the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now, there are other times in the New Testament, and I'm not going to go to there. My, my um, point isn't to make this exhaustive, but it is to show you the New Testament justifies the fact that we are going to uh, be looking for Christ and the covenants and related to covenants and in the satisfaction of covenants. But before we turn our, uh, to, the, to the Old Testament and start looking at those covenants, I'd like to consider, secondly tonight, what is a covenant? Now, initially I had intended to work through all the covenants tonight. Guess what? I'm not going to make it. Um, we're going to make it through two, and we're going to finish them up next week. So don't get nervous here. So what's a covenant? And I think it's appropriate for us to consider that because how are we going to know if Christ is associated with covenants if we don't know what a covenant is? Now, the word covenant occurs over 300 times in the Old Testament. The King James translates it as a league, um, such as in Joshua 9.6, and confederacy, such as in Genesis 14.13. Uh, but the vast majority of the times... He, uh, the Old Testament translates it with the word covenant. Now, um, one commentator I read defined covenant this way. It's a mutually binding agreement betwe- between two parties. You might think of it as a contract of sorts. And that's a very simple definition, but one I think you can remember. It's a mutually binding agreement between two parties. Now, I'd like us to consider some of the characteristics of a covenant that we see. And some of these are initially, you'll, uh, I'm going to use covenants that exist between men, but we're going to see those same principles play out when God makes a covenant with his people. And so you'll want to turn back in your Old Testament. And Genesis 26 is where we're going to start. There's four components that we see that are defined, that, that really are a portion of a covenant. When a covenant is made, these four things generally are associated with it. Now, not every covenant have all four parts of this, but th- this is generally true. So Genesis 26, look at verse 28. Here, Isaac is going to make a covenant with Abimelech, and they're negotiating about wells, wells of water. In verse 28, and it says, And they said, We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee, and we said, Let there be now an oath betwixt us. 
between, betwixt us and thee, and let us make a covenant with thee, that thou wilt do us no hurt, as we have not touched thee, and as we have done unto thee nothing but good, and have sent, uh, sent thee away in peace. Thou art now the blessed of the Lord. The first thing that we see associated with a covenant is described right here in verse number 28 is an oath. There is a covenant oath. 2 Chronicles 15, 12 illustrates this in a close connection between, uh, the close connection between a covenant and an oath. An oath is a means of, of declaring the intended resolve, of the guarantee, if you will. It is, it is a seal of permanence and of commitment to that, uh, to that covenant, that agreement, that contract. Now, consider for a moment um, g- how God confirmed his covenant promise of Christ. In Micah chapter 7, verse 20, the covenant with Abraham and Jacob were sworn unto the fathers from the days of old. And um, when reaffirming the covenant with Abraham, he swore by himself in Genesis twenty-two sixteen, And in Hebrews six nineteen. again, there's an oath, a covenant that is sworn. Repeatedly, when the covenants are made, an oath is sworn. So remember, one of the, one of the components of, an, of a covenant is the swearing of an oath. The second portion of a covenant is a sacrifice. Okay, Many times when a covenant is formed, there is a sacrifice. And this is, is really, um, this is key. And I'd say, I can't think of, perhaps as soon as I say that, somebody will come up with one. A sacrifice that's not made, or a covenant that's not made without a sacrifice. Um, for instance, the language that's used between David and Abner when they conspired to consolidate the nation. Um, when Jacob and Laban made uh, a covenant between one another. In Genesis thirty-one fifty-four, it says, Jacob offered sacrifice upon the mount and called his brethren to eat. And they did eat bread and tarried all night in the mount. Now, as part of this sacrifice, the blood is a very important portion, but really even perhaps more significant is the fact that this sacrifice is divided in two. And likely those two halves represented each of the parties in this, uh, in this making this covenant, in this agreement. And as part of the covenant agreement, the two parties would pass through those two parts of the sacrifice. And again, it represented the fact that they were binding, a binding commitment was being made as they passed through. They were saying, though we are two parts, we are committing uh, into oneness, to be a single unit. Each had his part, each had his duty to fulfill in maintaining that that agreement and that covenant. It was a binding contract. If you do this, I'll do this. And, and they, they bound one another by going through this, um, walking between the two, the two pieces of the sacrifice. As covenants are ratified by sacrifice, so too God ratified his covenant by the sacrifice of his son. Hebrews tells us that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, uh, through, uh, through his death by which he redeems sinners 
in Hebrews 9.15. John refers to Jesus in 1 John 2.2 as a propitiation, as an appeasement, as a sacrifice for our sins. John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Yes, it was vital um, that his, uh, his blood was shed, but when you read the New Testament language, it talks about us not just believing on Christ, but believing into Christ. And you get the same idea of, of the, 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 the commitment and the oneness that we have with him. So first you see the, the idea of, a, of an oath, Second, you have the idea of a sacrifice. And, and in both of those, we, we see um, the, the covenant with Christ being represented. And then third, the third aspect of a covenant is a covenant meal. Often a fellowship meal accompanied the establishment of, uh, of a covenant. After Isaac and Abimelech came and came to terms about those water rites, and it says they made a feast and they did eat and drink, Genesis 26, 30. And as covenants are, are confirmed uh, with this fellowship meal, so too did God institute fellowship with man. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have access by faith into his grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What did the covenant that that Jesus Christ established through his shed blood do? It made it so that we could have fellowship with God. 1 John chapter uh, chapter 1 says, If any man has fellowship with him, he walks in light with him. Um, And there's no way that we can have our sin and have fellowship with him. And so again, there's this idea of fellowship and particularly of a fellowship meal. Some would even suggest that the Lord's Supper is representative of, uh, of that same um, idea of a covenant meal, of a fellowship meal, where, yes, it is remembering the Lord's death. We even refer to it as communion at times, where we can commune and have a, a fellowship with God, and it represents the, the expression of that covenant meal. And then fourthly, uh, there's a, this idea of a covenant guarantee. And um, many times in, in the Old Testament, there's a, an exchange of salt, if you will, as part of a covenant. When Abijah, the king of Judah, warred, warred against Jeroboam, king of Israel, he referred to the Lord giving David the kingdom of Israel as a covenant of salt in Second Chronicles 13.5. Now, we have salt... Uh, to add flavor to things. But they use salt as a preservative. And the idea of adding salt or a salt of a, a covenant of salt is one that is preserved, that's ongoing. It refers to God's faithfulness. And so too, God's covenant that he has with us. As the salt of the covenant pictures certain perpetual nature of the covenant, so God made Christ the surety or the guarantee of a better covenant, Hebrews 7.22. So there's this idea of a guarantee that it's perpetual. There's this idea of a meal or there's fellowship. There's this idea that there is a sacrifice and a, a binding sacrifice. And there's also this idea of an oath. And each one of those kind of uh, bind or, or come together to consolidate 
various aspects of what a covenant is. And we clearly see the Lord Jesus Christ in the new covenant. But how do we see those things showing up in the old covenant? So tonight we're going to look at two. Um, We're going to look at the uh, uh, first one will be, if you'll turn, to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start all the way back at the beginning. We're going to look now at the various covenants in the Old Testament. Covenants between God and man. For the picture of these, uh, the, the, the idea of Christ being conveyed in these covenants. The first place I'd have you look is Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. Look what it says here. And it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest, Eatest therein, thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, we don't see the term covenant expressed here. However, you do see the Lord making a commitment, making a promise, an oath to, uh, to Adam, all the way back here at the very beginning. He demands Adam's total obedience, and he gives him a place, Eden, to live in. God gave Eden, uh, Adam freedom to eat from all the trees in the garden except one. And the tree of the knowledge uh, um, uh, of good and evil, the Lord explicitly forbid him of eating from that. And with obedience came life. And with disobedience came death. Well, we know how that turned out. Romans 5.12 tells us, By one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. But turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Look what the Lord says here, or what God says here to Adam and to Eve. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, here Adam has violated Adam and Eve have violated the 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 covenant, if you will, that was made between between them. Yet even in the curse that Adam is giving, God's grace abounds. He here is making a promise. To Adam, one a promise, a promise even in his discipline, even in his, uh, even in the, the the reproach. This verse we often call the Proto Evangelium, the first gospel, and it declares the Lord's resolve and purpose for reversing the curse. Look what he says: "I will put, I will put." It, it is it is God's confessed um, desire to put. Between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, um, and to put enmity there. God declares his intention to change the relationship between the woman and the serpent. What had happened? The woman had followed the serpent and succumbed to his guile. And yet now God is saying, I'm going to change that. I'm going to change the fact that you are following the serpent. I'm going to put enmity between you and the serpent. 
where she had agreed with Satan against God, now in God's grace, he's going to reconcile her to himself. In this verse, you'll see that there's a, 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 a couple things that are really key to the idea of all the covenants that we're going to look at. And I mentioned this last week in looking at Galatians chapter 3. It's this idea of a seed. You see it here. I mentioned last week, and we looked at some of Paul's argument, where Paul says the seed is singular. Um, And through all of these covenants, you're going to see that, yes, it is true that the the word seed is singular, referring to Jesus Christ, according to the Apostle Paul, under inspiration. We know that the Bible says, in the fullness of time, God sent his forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem them who were under the law. Here in this promise, the very first commitment that we see of God is that God is going to redeem his people through a man, through her seed, through the seed of Abraham, or through the seed of Adam. He would be a human. Now, as we consider each one of these a covenants. God is going to give us increased revelation. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll share the punchline because it's amazing the way it works. First, here with, with Adam, we see God commits it to be a man. We're going to consider Noah in just a minute. And we're going to see God commits not of all of Adam's sons, but of a particular son, Shem. Then we're going to consider, as it goes down through, now it's no longer just a Semitic person now it's going to be of the seed of Abraham he's going to be a and then of Isaac and as of of Jacob increasingly God is focusing down on a particular line and you're going to see through all of these covenants and it's amazing how it seems like well that's just going to be impossible how can how can God save uh, how can God save Um, the fallen human race through someone born of a fallen human. How can that be? Well, there comes the virgin birth. And and we're going to see as time goes on how that line is threatened. You you look at Noah and how... I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. I'll come back there. But but you're going to see with Noah how God is going to destroy the whole earth. But wait... I can't destroy the whole earth because I need to have a seed of Abraham or a a seed of Adam down through Noah. If I wipe out all the the earth and everybody living on it, then how am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to put Noah in a boat and I'm going to float him along and I'm going to save that seed. You see it all the way down through the ages. And it's just amazing. It's like, well, well, now we're in a place where there's no way that, that, that God can fulfill his covenant and his promises. And protecting that seed becomes a vitally important thing. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under, the law, under law. Hebrews 2.14 says that Christ became flesh so that, he, so that he could, through death, destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that it was vital that that Christ was a flesh and blood, like as we are, yet without sin. The verse gives us another key. 
um, as I said, which is this idea of impossible redemption. The first gospel does not reveal all the details about about Christ. It doesn't reveal the fact that he's going to be born of of a virgin. It doesn't reveal the fact that he's going to die on the cross. But here is the proto evangelium. God is going to redeem mankind with a man. That's where faith needs to begin. How's that happen? I don't know, but God said it. Adam and Eve didn't have to know how it would all work out, but through faith, God gave them light, and they needed to believe in the Redeemer, in the Messiah. You see, man is always saved the same way, by faith in Jesus Christ. And such is the case with this first covenant. Aren't you glad that you live on this side of the cross? That you have that additional light that God has. But you know what? If God didn't work by grace in your life, you'd be just as blind as they. Let's consider the second covenant. The word covenant appears for the first time in the Old Testament with reference to God's covenant with Noah. You know the story. The story of the flood is a tragic testimony to the implications of Adam's sin. Look what happens in this world when man sins and God allows man to go his own way. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Look, if you would, at Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. This is amazing. Maybe you've seen this before, but I hope it blesses you tonight. Genesis 6, 8. Look what it says. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What happened first? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now look at verse 9. God granted grace that went, and after that happened, it says, Noah was a just man and perfect in, in his generations, and Noah walked with God. What happened first? God granted grace. What happened second? Adam walked perfectly in all his generations. A, 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 I'm sorry, Noah. Noah, like I said, I'm tired. Noah, Noah wa, wa, was a just man and, and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Now, apart from God's grace, Noah is not perfect. And Noah is not walking with God. Noah is just like everyone else in his generation. He experienced God's grace, and that brought him to God. And it was through Noah that God, again, redeemed that human race, though it had fallen. Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 9. And look at verse 9. Here's the, here's the establishment of the covenant. And I, Genesis 9, 9, and I, behold, I establish my covenant with you. And with your, look what it says there, seed after you. And with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl of the, uh, of the, fowl of the cattle and every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the water of a flood. Neither shall there be any more more be a flood to destroy the earth. 
Here, God promises to preserve Noah and his family. That's very vitally important, especially when he uses that idea there in verse 9 of a seed. That there is singular. Yeah. Now, the word seed is singular, and Paul makes that 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 um, that, that clear in Galatians three. The word seed can also just refer to a collection. Okay, so specifically, what Paul says, seed is singular, and it refers to Jesus Christ. But generally, it can also apply to to Noah's family and and God. So God is making a promise, and by by saying that He's going to preserve Jesus Christ. He is inherently making a promise that he's going, to res- he's going to preserve Noah. Genesis 9, 16, the Lord gives a symbol of his mercy, and he calls it an everlasting covenant in John, uh, Genesis 9, 16. Not only did God's covenant with Noah continue the promise that was made to, Abraham, to Adam, and the seed, that the seed would be Adam's race, a man. But as I said already, we're going to see in, in um, Genesis 9, verse 25. Let's look at that. Genesis 9, 25. Let me get there. Let me read verses 25 through 27. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. As a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. And Canaan shall be his servant. And shall enlarge Japheth. And he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. And Canaan shall be his servant. Here we're going to see that God... And, and there's some, there's some uh, difficulty there with some of the language. But the best understanding of that, that God is condemning Canaan. And he is specifically blessing Shem. And as, as the, the covenants go on, and shortly after this, God is going to repeatedly, throughout the Old Testament, you see these genealogies. Why is that? It's God saying, I'm being faithful to the promises, and I'm, I'm maintaining and preserving that seed. We're going to see, again, in the remaining covenants, in Genesis chapter 11, 12, 15, and 17, God is going to make a covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 49, 10, in 2 Samuel 7, and Psalm 89, he's going to make covenants with David. In Exodus 19, he makes a covenant with Moses. And in Jeremiah 31, there is a new covenant. Each one of these covenants we're going to see very much is, is this idea of maintaining and preserving that seed. And you'll see it all the way down. And then in Galatians 3, Paul explains it to us. All this covenant language. And, and, and it's important for us to understand that, that God is, is making specific promises to specific people group. And when, when we look at the Abrahamic covenant next week, he's making a promise to Jewish people. And, and yet, what is that promise? Uh, of a land, of a seed, of a blessing. And he says, and by you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And again, to David, 
and, and, and then to Moses, and then the new covenant. Each one of those we'll consider next week. But you'll see the preservation of that seed. You see the idea of a promise of, a, of, a, of God's faithfulness, of an oath. You see the idea of fellowship, the fact that those covenants grant uh, fellowship with God. You see the commitment that, that they bear. Each one of the aspects of these covenants come forth. And through all of that, we see that Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of all of them. Tonight, we've seen the New Testament points to Christ. And in, in both generally, as we looked at Luke in, in Luke, and then more specifically, that we see Christ in the covenants. Particularly, we're going to see it next week as we go to Abraham and to David. We're going to see the the components of those covenants. And we're going to see Christ's person and his work fulfill each one of those components. We've begun to see through this idea of a seed and God preserving, uh, preserving that seed through the ages. And then we see that his only begotten, his monogonese, his unique son, the one born of a woman, born under the law, that would fulfill the law, that was, and, and the, in the New Testament, we see him traced all the way back to Adam. Why is that? We see him uh, through Shem, and we see uh, all the various um, uh, lineages repeatedly um, stressing the fact of Christ's uh, genealogy. Why is that? Well, it ties that seed back to the original promises and to the faithfulness of our God. Is Christ in the Old Testament? What have we begun to see tonight? What we've begun to see tonight, and what I will confirm and uh, finalize next week, I think the answer that you're going to come to recognize is that unquestionably, Christ is in the Old Testament. He's not some new introduction. This isn't two books, this isn't two promises, there's not two plans of salvation. God's way was perfect from the beginning to the end. And we see it progressively disclosed in each one of these covenants. As the, the picture that came to me was um, as uh, uh, they, they discover the, uh, oh boy, the gentleman that stole the Babylonian garment, garment when they, they came into Jericho. Achan. You know, remember how they, they found Achan? Right? They, they cast lots and they progressively disclosed down until it came to him. It's almost like that exact same progressive disclosure is going on, and eventually it comes down, and it has to be none other than Jesus Christ. And you're just like, why didn't I see that before? I pray that that happens as we work our way through the rest of these covenants, and that God will bless you with that revelation. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that your plan of salvation is awesome beyond our ability to intellectually uh, understand. Lord, that your promises are faithful. Lord, that this idea of steadfast love, of mercy, that we see repeated, that word repeated throughout the Old Testament, declares, Lord, your, your sovereign care, your love, your mercy, and your commitment. Lord, we thank you that your way is perfect. And though, Lord, we... Uh, we are so very unfaithful to the 
to the promises and covenants that have been made with us, Lord, you are always faithful. Lord, to the point of extending grace to us and calling us back to yourself. Lord, pulling us, redeeming us, and purchasing us from the slave market of sin and restoring us to fellowship, to perfect fellowship with you. Lord, we thank you for that grace and pray your blessing on this flock. Send us forth tonight, Lord, with your blessing and in the power of your spirit to live for you, recognizing and living as the Apostle Paul who declared for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Lord, I pray that you'll be glorified in all things. In Christ's name, amen. All right, I'd like to close with a hymn.